Welcome to Vegas Inc. Radio. I'm Dylan Goldberg, host of the show and business editor of Vegas Inc. and the Las Vegas Sun. Over the next half hour, we'll be discussing the food outbreak that's been linked to the Firefly restaurant and a casino that's going undergoing a renovation and perhaps breathing new life into an old property that struggled. But first, we'll turn our attention to unions and their role on the Strip. The Culinary Union is perhaps one of the strongest unions in the world, definitely in Las Vegas. And our own Ed Comenda uh, recently took a look back at the history of the union and its future in gaming on the Strip. Um, welcome, Ed. Thanks for having me. So this episode is all Ed all the time. You've had a lot of uh, great stories, um, including one we titled Union Ties. And basically the takeaway was the fact that the culinary and the gaming companies on the Strip, while they might not see eye to eye all the time, can't escape each other. They're inextricably linked. Yeah, that's right. Um, if you look at Las Vegas when it actually uh, became a tourist destination uh, and recognized as one um, as early as the, the 40s, um, the union was there right right there with them. And as the strip grew, uh, as more buildings started to go up, uh, more members started joining the union. And you, we see this throughout um, uh, every decade uh, between 1940 and, and now. I mean, it's still that way. So, And now, back in the day, the union, right now, I mean, whether people love it or hate it, you're always going to get opinions with unions. Mm-hmm. But it had some shady beginnings and that people thought it, it was or in fact it was linked with them all yeah absolutely the um, uh, the president of uh, the uh, culinary union in the 70s was a guy by the name of Al Bramett and he actually turned up dead uh, at the edge of the desert um, in uh, 1978 and the, <laughs> the next the, the year after they found him a couple of mobsters from Chicago um, you know ple- pled guilty to uh, to murder, but even before that, there were stories of Bugsy Siegel uh, giving directions to the union, and and uh, the, these workers were hobnobbing with gangsters because they all ran in the same circle. So there's a very um, seedy um, uh, aspect to the union if you look at the early history, and one of the major challenges was shedding that. Uh, and right now, I think it's safe to say. In Las Vegas, uh, which is a town that's kind of in the last you know couple decades started to glorify that connection. You know, we have the Mob Museum and things like that. It's not that big a deal anymore, but it's a colorful history, and uh, it's certainly interesting when you see how it uh, played in the the culinary's growth. So, absolutely, and and they worked hard, as you said, to shed that image. How did they come about to be the legitimate and frankly? Uber powerful uh, body that they are today. Right. Well, depending on who you ask, um, the, one of the first major mega resorts to open uh, in in the uh, on the strip was the Mirage, and that was Steve Wynn's project. And Steve Wynn um, set a precedent by agreeing uh, with the, making an agreement with the culinary to not fight unionization if uh, the majority of the workers presented cards, which is this is the birth of the card check. If the majority of the, the workers presented these cards and said they wanted to join, well, then the, those workers would be organized. And um, after that happened, uh, a handful of resorts along the Strip started to follow suit. And um, before we knew it, the union had a foothold um, 
on a lot of the majority of properties on the strip. And it, it just ballooned from there. So, And the health, I mean, they, they've never been, they've never lost their power locally, right. but the health and size of the union has ebbed and flowed with the strip, the struggles in the boom years? Oh, sure. Absolutely. I mean, um, <laughs> one one example that, that might not be, uh, well, it is economical, but September 11th, when, when the terrorist attacks happened, uh, people were afraid and they didn't want to fly. Um, tourism numbers plummeted and so did the um, number of culinary workers on the strip because to reconcile this leaky stream, um, resort officials had to lay people off. So it's very much connected that way. And we see that, I mean, um, when the Sahara closed, I think they lost about 2,000 workers, you know, and uh, other buildings have been going up. But uh, it's very much connected that way. So, And so where are we now in terms of um, our, it seems like we're making an economic rebound. Is the culinary starting to grow again? Uh, it's grow. It's not growing, Okay. Uh, because Southern Nevada still very much is trying to get its stuff together uh, after the recession, hemorrhage workers and 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 basically um, crumbled the housing market. I mean, people are still out of work. Uh, there's still a significant amount of people out of work. Uh, but that being said, there's still about sixty thousand people in the culinary, um, twenty thousand of whom they they work for MGM alone. So, <laughs> if twenty thousand workers at MGM were to strike. Uh, that would have detrimental effects on business. So I would say that their power is still enormous. Uh, their numbers are at a standstill, and we'll have to see what happens. I mean, with, with development on the strip, if it's going to grow or you know get more powerful. So well, sixty thousand people, twenty thousand in one company. Obviously, they're a huge employer um, with Caesars and right. the like. Um, that could just be crippling if, if oh, something ab- were abs- to happen. Absolutely, and. Um, uh, the the union has closed uh, casinos before. I mean, uh, back in the eighties, there was a citywide strike um, that that actually closed the frontier for a while. Um, actually, no, that was in the nineties, the, the early nineties, when they they struck outside the frontier, and all their workers were outside. They couldn't really do anything, and then the frontier had to invite workers back. Um, so yeah, they have they have quite uh, quite a lot of power. And now um, that's. Sort of explains, I mean, the the MGM Caesars officials that you talked to said, I wouldn't call it a love-hate relationship, but it's a symbiotic relationship. They need each other, and um, that makes sense. Right. It's like like a family. Uh, You know, um, (laughs) you're going to have your arguments, and and one official uh, likened his relationship or or his company's relationship with the culinary as as uh, sitting down to um, Thanksgiving dinner, you know, uh, it's something that happens all the time. And this is this is in regard to um, contract negotiations because that's what we're really talking about when we focus on the relationship. That's what culinary workers care about. They care about um, having a living wage, having a pension, having health insurance, and that's where uh, that those are the sticking points for their negotiations. That's that's what they've always been. So um, when a resort leader sits down with the leader of culinary. There's going to be arguments, but they realize that um, they have to get through it because if they don't, um, a divorce could be quite painful, you know? For everyone. Yeah, absolutely. So, When you mentioned fair wages and good contracts, I mean, that's bottom line. It doesn't matter if it's a teacher's union or a steelworker's union. 
that's the benefit of joining a union? Yeah, that's one of them. Uh, that That's probably the, the most important one. Uh, we always hear stories about um, the American dream, you know, like Horatio Alger and things. Uh, and there's a thing called the Las Vegas dream that, that workers still talk about today. And it's basically, you know, you move to Las Vegas, you get married, uh, husband's working as a bartender, uh, wife's working as a, a cocktail waitress. You could have a house, you could have a stable living environment for your family. Um, one of the reason, one of the ways that that's possible is the wages um, for a bartender or a cocktail waitress are significantly higher in Las Vegas than they are in other parts of the country. Um, well, so, let's, I'm going to interrupt you right ahead. there just yeah. to share with our readers. It's pretty astounding. If you look at the occupation, um, a bartender, for instance, in Las Vegas, he or she would make an average of $16.33 an hour, which is pretty good money for a bartender. Mm-hmm. But compare that with the middle of the U.S., and they would make $9.14 an hour. So it's almost double the wages. Um a line cook in Vegas, it's sixteen and change. In the Midwest, eleven dollars. Um, cocktail server, it's pretty astounding. Uh, here locally, the average is eleven dollars and eighty-eight cents, and in the central U.S., it's five dollars and sixty-one cents. So that's well over half. So yeah. it, it's effective, I guess. They're yeah. negotiating. One of my favorite stories that I've heard uh, in reporting the story was uh, the McCarran International Airport. Um, the workers at the Burger King there, they have a pension. They have health care. They make more money than somebody flipping burgers in Chicago. Um, and people are happy because they make, they make the money, you know, and that's one reason they keep coming to Vegas. So, Absolutely. And just to be fair, um, there is another side to unions, but a lot of people don't like them. And there are some drawbacks. What are some of the you know, maybe negatives, at least to some of, of union membership. Well, um, the uh, some of the negatives is uh, as a resort leader, um, you're not dealing with employees one by one. Um, the culinary will always tell you that the, every fight is their fight, even if they're not directly involved. If you look at the Cosmo, um, the recent um, recent protests outside the Cosmopolitan. There were workers from the Mirage. There were workers from uh, Mandalay Bay. Everywhere they were just bodies, you know. But they were there in support of uh, the two thousand workers at the Cosmo. That's a big thing to deal with if you're a um, if you if, if you're a company owner, because like I said, you're you're not just dealing with one. The other the other one is having to pay out healthcare costs. A lot of companies cut corners that way. They make um, their employees pay for it themselves. And uh, when you're under a union contract, um, companies are responsible for for a lot of that. So that, that's that's those are a couple of them. Absolutely. So. Well, I would I would say at least in Vegas, we're a union town. Those are probably at least for the members, maybe not the companies. Right. Um, minor considerations. Yeah, absolutely. The, the union knows what it wants, and <laughs> so and and, and the, the resorts are aware of that as well. So. Absolutely. Um, well, great. Uh, for those of you just joining us, you're listening to Vegas Inc. Radio. We're part of Waking Up with the Sun. We're here every Monday at 7 a.m. on KUNV 91.5 The Source. I'm your host, Dylan Goldberg, business editor of Vegas Inc. and the Las Vegas Sun. And I'm speaking today with gaming and strip reporter Ed Kmenda. 
Um, let's turn our attention to another story you wrote um, about the resurgence of the long-shuttered Golden Palm Hotel. Um, my understanding is it's not quite open, but there are some big plans underway. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the Golden Palm, if you drive down 15 um, past Tropicana, as you're coming up on the Tropicana, you'll look to the left uh, and you'll see a big sign that says the Golden Palm Hotel Lounge Bar is coming soon. Um the Golden Palm has been closed for a number of years, uh, but its owner, uh, Marvin Lipschultz, um, he's actually the operator because the company is now owned by a family trust, but he's been in waiting uh, as the Strip has tried to recover from this recession. Uh, and Marvin Lipschultz, he is, at this point in my career at The Sun, is one of my favorite characters to have, to have met here. Uh, he's a former uh, Hollywood producer, um, successful real estate mogul, um, he produces shows on the strip and now, uh, he's looking for a new challenge, which is <laughs> to hopefully bring the golden palm, uh, out of obscurity and, um, actually make something profitable out of it. So, so yeah, I mean, it, there's, there's a very colorful history behind it, you know, so. I think it's funny. My hobby is a uh, challenge tennis, you know, and he's, his is uh, <laughs> developing casinos. Yeah, but. absolutely. So now tell us a little bit, because I mean, he has grand plans there, um, starting with a bar restaurant to begin with. Uh, so you can tell us a little bit about that, but the plans that are in the works right now sort of pale in comparison to what originally was planned. Yeah, when I when I met Marvin Lipschultz at his um, office at the Golden Palm, uh, he showed me this pile of artist renderings in the corner, which showed architectural drawings of um, all the resorts that, that 3.5 acres of land um, could have been. You know, it, the, the most recent one was a... Um, uh, 40-plus story uh, hotel resort called the One Trop. And that one actually hangs over his desk. So <laughs> whenever he goes to work, he kind of looks at this picture and he's reminded of of uh, what, uh, you know, how grand those plans could have been. But um, in 2007, um, 2008, financing for that project dried up and he was left with um, really nothing but the, but the land and the property. So he was kind of um, devastated that way because um, he couldn't he couldn't fulfill his dream. So, uh, but before even before the one drop, there was the uh, the um, there was a Miami Art Deco styled hotel, and then there was a Charlie Palmer hotel, and all of those had their own separate problems. And there's a handful of them that just never came to be. Uh, so now he wants to do what he can with what he has and try to open a successful bar restaurant which you know is nothing compared to a resort you know it's very simple but but he says that's a start i mean i don't know if that's a, a pie in the sky dream or potentially a reality but he says this is just the beginning and he hopes to expand from there if it's a success yeah if it's a success um i guess that's the, the big key <laughs> it is the big key and he's um i recently found out that he actually opened um for one weekend earlier this year to see how um, reactive people on the strip would be to going there, and it wasn't very successful. Um, but he equates that to not having a good enough idea yet. You know, he's he's very much about trial and error, the whole Thomas Edison light bulb theory. And he's um, he's just look. He always says he's just looking for a good idea. Um, the hotel itself needs a lot of work. Um, before my story, it had popped up in in the newspapers. You know that it had been you know a, a place marred by prostitution. That that area was kind of uh, prone to that kind of stuff, and um, 
the 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 hotel portion of the the, the property was has been kind of in ruins lately. So there's going to be a lot of work that needs to be done. Um, but it's amazing because through all of that, it's a huge challenge. It's certainly one that I wouldn't be interested in in, in doing given given the history. But um, he's still positive about the whole thing. He goes to work every day. He has food. He has booze. He has you know, uh, landscapers cleaning up the property. And, uh, yeah, it's really kind of interesting and inspiring on an interesting level, you know. Yeah, absolutely. So. And his background is in meat and real estate. Yeah, meat and real estate. He uh, He's actually from Chicago, where I'm from. So uh, we, we connected on that. Yeah, we connected on that. And I was familiar with his meat packing plant because uh, my family had, had heard of it. And uh, he was... Uh, uh, he was the operator of a very successful meat operation that actually uh, distributed. Uh, it was one of the largest distributors of meat to Japan at the time. This was in the early 70s. And after he, you know, accomplished the goal of being one of the most successful meat packers in, in the in the country, he turned his focus to real estate and he turned a series of condos that he owned, which was next door to the Playboy Mansion, uh, into um, – you know, uh, private residences, and he sold them, uh, and now they're worth 15 or 16 times more than what they were, and now they're worth about uh, $1.5 million a piece. It's incredible. Yeah, so he used that money, and he hightailed it to, <laughs> to San Diego, where he bought a big house for his family, and he got bored, and that's how he got into Hollywood. Uh, which is a completely different story. You can go on and on about this, but he, he ended up producing a movie called Terror on Alcatraz. Um, during the production of that, he actually uh, rented out the, the Alcatraz Island uh, <laughs> and acted as a policeman in the movie because he wanted to be a part of the project that he had funded. And uh, he parlayed that into a couple trips to the Oscars. And then he parlayed some of the money he made into um, real estate and land in Las Vegas, which is how he has um, been able to, to set up shop here. So, And what do you think? I mean, there's been so many plans for that property, although that's not unique to that property here. Um, do you think it's just not a good location or do you think a casino resort bar hotel can be successful there? Well, um, I think that a casino hotel uh, bar uh, at, at the scale it is now, which I think it's le- it's less than 500 rooms, uh, could be successful. But um, if you look at the size of the area, it's 3.5 acres. There's no way, in my opinion anyway, that you could uh, build a mega resort on that land. There's well, not tiny. enough room. And yeah, it's tiny. And, and when he was going through the process of, of trying to get this approved, he got a lot of um, lashback from station. And Well, we'll, we'll wish uh, Marvin the best of luck in all his endeavors, and mm-hmm. you'll have to keep us posted on what happens to the Golden Palm. I certainly will. Well, thanks, Ed. Mm-hmm. Um, Ed Comenda is our gaming and strip reporter. Let's talk about another story that has been uh, the buzz of town, unfortunately, for a couple weeks now. Um, dozens and dozens, hundreds of people have gotten sick from food, a salmonella outbreak that we have been told by the health department um, has been linked to Firefly. And unfortunately, Firefly is uh, you know one of our homegrown success stories, and we all are rooting for it, but it's facing some struggles. Um, you had a big story about where what this means for the company and where it goes from yeah. here. Right, yeah. Um, so the basic background on the story is uh, late April. Uh, I think it was uh, between April 20th and, and uh, I think it was like a five-day stretch from there. 
people started reporting uh, sicknesses to the Southern Nevada Health District. Um, you know, vomiting, diarrhea, it's really, really nasty stuff. Uh, and the health department later determined that um, 86 of those people had eaten at Firefly on Paradise Road. Uh, same restaurant, same period. The peak of illnesses happened uh, on April 26th. So the majority of those people had eaten there uh, on the same day. Um, well, that was the first story. And then within a week, that number ballooned uh, to 200 people from 22 states and two foreign countries uh, that had gotten sick um, from a um, apparent salmonella outbreak at Firefly. And so Firefly has been scrambling. The health department has closed the restaurant. Um, yeah, it's just it's just a mess, you know, to start. When we're talking about sickness, it's not, oh, my tummy feels off after dinner. This is like violent, this serious is, illness. This is violent stuff. I uh, I spoke with uh, several victims of this. Um, one woman, uh, she was a Caesars employee. She's a local woman. She, uh, she had eaten there, and uh, she went to the bathroom something like 16 times uh, in, in less than eight hours. Uh, uh. Her boss sent her home, um, and that continued for a good uh, five days. She had to go to the hospital. Um, she said her stomach was swollen like she was pregnant and they said that it was because her intestines were it's very I'm hoping to pass the breakfast test I think I've already failed but um, basically her intestines were inflamed uh, and they linked it back to salmonella and she had eaten um, (laughs) uh, chorizo and chicken stuffed mushrooms and had a glass of sangria and had some pan seared tuna uh, none of which have actually been the source of this stuff. Um, the health department has been unable to to tie the salmonella back to a specific food. Uh, but, but they say, you know, if it quacks like a duck, it looks like one, it probably is one. All these people uh, getting sick from the same thing, eating at the same restaurant, it's uh, pretty obvious that it, that's where it started. So. Absolutely, although it is still unclear whether, you know, it originated in Firefly or perhaps was... Um, in a crop of lettuce or, uh, you know, from a supplier. Right. They um, they were able to, to narrow down the serotype, which is basically like a genetic uh, fingerprint uh, of this uh, salmonella, but it wasn't very helpful. The serotype that they found out, um, it, it's mostly found in egg-based stuff, uh, but <laughs> the tapas at, at Firefly, the, the menu is so exotic. Uh, if you go to a... a dinner with a party of 10 people, you're going to get more than 10 plates of food. And salmonella, uh, it's difficult to trace it back to a particular food because it's an intestine-borne. Uh, or, that's where it really originates. That's where they, they find it uh, mostly. Uh, but they were unable to, to really pinpoint it to a specific place. Uh, so it could be the distributor. It could be the restaurant. But right now, <laughs> the restaurant's taking a lot of heat for it. So... And in their defense, John Simmons, who's the owner, he um, they've been scrubbing and cleaning and, uh, you know, have apologized to their customers and appear, at least by their statements, to be doing everything they can to rectify the situation. But it's still pretty devastating, I would imagine. Yeah, as far as um, how it happened, um, the health department was able to... uh, they had to close the restaurant because they found 44 health violations, uh, which is four more than, than you need to really to close the restaurant. And it was it was for stuff like employees handling the food without 
gloves uh, and without washing their hands. And they found a thermometer there used to, to, to measure the temperature of food uh, that read over 100 degrees uh, in ice water, which uh, is a problem. So in my opinion, it looks like um, you know, an oversight that happened over a five-day period that had really detrimental consequences, which happens. Right. It happens. And Firefly has apologized for it. But it sounds like they might have some culpability if they weren't following. They they code. do they do and that's um that actually leads to uh, a part of the story I wrote about lawsuits and the litigation tied to this because um, there's something the story that I published mentioned um, I think it was at least more than uh, thirty lawsuits filed at a Seattle law firm headed by this guy named Bill Marler. Uh, last time I talked to Bill, it had grown to seventy-five. Wow! So he, um, John Simmons and Firefly, they uh, are going to be in court, you know, sometime uh, to talk about this. And one of the things that's going to play into litigation is um, past health examinations. And from the health department. From the health department. Yeah. So that's going to play into the success of the litigation. Um, and there were some issues that, I mean, they hadn't always had an A, correct? They, they always, they, they never, okay, so basically hotel uh, uh, restaurants are graded on, you know, an A, B, C, D scale and failing. Uh, Firefly had received C's several occasions, um, some B's, some A's. So it's a very, the grades run the gamut, really. So. And then how, um, I know you addressed this in your story, but maybe you can explain for our readers, how do they know that the people who claim to be victims are legit, that they have to, a burden of proof, right? Right, right. Well, the burden of proof is based on uh, several different things, uh, which can include receipts from the restaurant, um, uh, medical bills, uh, and medical results. If, if you go to a doctor... Uh, if enough people come forward with receipts that say they've they've eaten at the, the restaurant and, and if enough of those people have word from a doctor or an emergency room that says, well, this person has is suffering from uh, a salmonella infection, that's very detrimental to the um, to the defense. You know, that, that stuff um, – it's not like a criminal case where it has to be proved beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, in this kind of type of case, it's it could be as simple as receipts and and a uh, doctor's opinion, right? And, Even going to an ER and saying, "Yeah, I just had a right. you know stuffed date at Firefly." Yeah, absolutely. And, and also, sometimes they the courts call in expert witnesses to independently investigate um, restaurants, and these expert witnesses will go into these these restaurants, do their thing, show up for court for one day give their opinion and leave. And those guys, they typically never find out the the outcome of the the trials. So uh, it's it's very um, uh, you know, it's very objective. So And often sometimes that's because the restaurant has settled with victims. Yeah, a lot of the times it doesn't go to trial because um, the uh, plaintiffs make their demands and uh, restaurants um, <laughs> not wanting to go to trial. Uh, not willing to, to pay for the for the litigation that goes with it, um, they often settle. And, and the settlements, um, the majority of these cases end with a settlement. And the settlements can be anywhere from several thousand dollars to a million dollars if someone ends up dying or misses a lot of work or, you know, uh, whatever it costs, you know. And do we know if uh, John had 
business insurance or something to cover this? Um, I was not able to get that from John Simmons. Uh, at the beginning of the story, John was, uh, you know, very, you know, I, I'm sure he's still surprised. But at the beginning of this this uh, uh, news story, he was, you know, very apologetic and he, he was easy to get a hold of. But after the numbers started growing, uh, the story started growing. I was unable to to get in touch with them as easy as I was, which I understand because there's litigation involved now. Um, but I, I can't tell you for sure if he did. Yeah, well, hopefully he did because yeah. uh, I think we all would hate to see a, a local homegrown company like this that was, you know, a big part of our, our success here um, yeah. go down in such an awful way. No, absolutely. And it's uh, I've eaten there before and I loved it. And uh, John Simmons is kind of a fixture for the Las Vegas dream, you know, so he's, uh, I wish him the luck, you know. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much for being us for our whole half an hour, Yeah, Ed. absolutely. I've been happy to do it. Um, Ed Comenda is our gaming and strip reporter for Vegas Inc. and the Las Vegas Sun. You can follow all his coverage and all our reporters' coverage at VegasInc.com and LasVegasSun.com. This is Vegas Inc. Radio, part of Waking Up With The Sun. We're here every Monday at 7 a.m. on KUNV 91.5 The Source. I'm your host, Dellen Goldberg, business editor of Vegas, Inc. Thanks to Steven Zeller, our producer, and the entire KUNV team. And thanks to you for listening. Enjoy your day. <laughs>